the topic came about because in the last couple of weeks in our daily live support chats, especially in our Winning Wednesday segment, which is when we talk a lot about advanced nutrition and physique sport competition, we've had some questions about how much body fat should I gain in the off season or, or you know, what's, what's the best setup for an off season and, and pre-contest combined. And I, I just, I really thought because of some of the questions we answered this week, this would be a perfect, perfect thing to explore. And when I say that, I think you won't be too surprised, you know, right off the bat, intuitively, you should be thinking if you have to diet harder, meaning you're losing more body fat and more weight per week, you risk losing lean body mass. The longer you have to diet, you risk losing more lean body mass. The more cardio you have to do, you risk losing more lean body mass. I think those are all pretty commonly accepted quote stories, but I really wanted to see what a, a good smattering of research showed and if there was any nuance, anything that we could really learn about the topic. So one of the first things, well, not the first thing, but one of the things I ran across, which is more of a meta-analysis in the uh, International Journal of Obesity, was one where they did compare a pretty large amount of studies, as I said, uh, off camera, when you're talking about nutrition research, you're never going to run out of things to look at. And not all studies may be the best, and they may not all be very conclusive independently. But uh, this particular uh, systematic review looked at the dif difference between low calorie diets, which would mean about a thousand calorie deficit. So that's, that's pretty low. I mean, as competitors, we, we would not even really want to go there. Right. I mean, a thousand calories a day deficit, that is definitely a low calorie deficit, but a very low calorie diet is medically something that de definitions varies. Uh, very. One of them is, you know, it has to be like 500 calories. That's a Mayo Clinic, very low calorie uh, diet. Others will say between 400 and 800 calories, something like that. And then they, they through their grid of analysis, they looked at those same very low calorie diets with exercise. And, and just to not even get into the weeds of all of this, because the criteria was, was so heavy. Uh, I, I just, you know, I, I let the cat out of the bag right here. It, you, you lose 14% lean body mass uh, if you do a low calorie diet alone compared to 23%, uh, 23.4, if you're on a very low calorie diet. And uh, then when you do a little exercise with that, you can see that you can cut the deficit in half. And this is a little bit, I don't want to say controversial, but there, there were some studies that would contend some differences. And, and I'll point that out here in a little bit. So right off the bat, if you, like me, share the hypothesis that dieting harder in a deeper calorie deficit is worse for you, you're right. You know, that's kind of obvious. That's so, so thanks guys. Have a good weekend. We're done. Um, but let's, let's, let's go on and let's, let's see some of these, you know, what, what kind of the ranges were. So this is just a little sample out of those 1500 or so It's actually about 1600 studies that they looked at. And these are all just low calorie. So not even the very low calorie, because I didn't think that's, you know, nobody here is going to do that. Nobody's going to say, hey, I'm getting ready for a show. I'm going to go down to 400 calories a day. Um, but you look at look at how much fat free mass loss there is as just a range. Some of these studies showed uh, up to 36 percent loss of lean body mass. Um, 
And some of them, you know, down to the 10, 13% range. It kind of depends. You'll see some resistance there. This was an interesting nuance I picked up in several of these studies. We would think, and I think we would even just not only do this ourselves, we would teach this to clients. We would teach this with a lot of academic confidence that if you want to retain lean body mass, the best way to do it is lift weights. But you know what worked better than lifting weights? Cardiovascular exercise. For some reason, cardiovascular exercise helped people retain more lean body mass than anaerobic exercise. And, you know, something I think that could be studied on its own merit, but I'll throw out my own little hypothesis based on another study that I'll present here in a, in a few minutes. I think because most of us in the gym lifting weights, we go at it pretty hard. And, and you know that, that you know, the more muscle tissue you're using, you're working through the different energy systems, that becomes a pretty extra catabolic process. And that's why we talk about pre-workout nutrition, post-workout nutrition. And, and I think to our own detriment sometimes, especially in today's age, where everybody wants more frequency and more volume and more duration, it just becomes more of a catabolic exercise than anabolic, or I should say endeavor, not to confuse the terms. Um, so interesting, right? Like, like if, if you just had to pick one, you could do aerobic exercise and probably retain more lean body mass, but that's not the game we're in. We're not all training for the Olympics. So, so just keep that in mind that, that there, there's probably a ceiling when you're in a calorie deficit to how much time you want to spend in the gym and how much you want to go into really deep, deep, you know, hard catabolic work. So here is just another supportive study. Uh, this one looked at the effect of two different weight loss rates. And they, they, they took people into, they take 36 elite male and female athletes, pretty young. Uh, this was, these were Olympic athletes actually. And they uh, kind of baselined them out. So they, with metabolic cart testing, they got to know their exact metabolic needs, their metabolic capacities, energy balance. And so they set up two different groups, one to lose just half a kilo at a time and one to use a full kilo. So again, pretty aggressive. Even the, even the group losing just half a kilogram, that's, that's about a pound a week. You know, that's, that's pretty solid progress or at least a pace. Uh, but here are some interesting things. I'm going to move my uh, camera view out of the way here to see that end. Um, it, it, this is kind of surprising. So, and I, because this is not an inpatient study, I want to say that we may not have the greatest level of confidence in the validity of this number. When you look at just body weight change, so one group is losing twice as fast as the other, meaning a, you know, twice the calorie deficit, and yet the actual body weight change was identical. So if you were just looking at face value, you could make the assumption, well, gosh, if, I, if I'm trying to double my weight loss and I'm working that much harder, I could just cut that in half and I'll lose just as much. I'm not sure that's the case because as you know, with self-reported studies, when you push people too hard, when you're asking them, for example, to do a ketogenic diet, there's sometimes more than a 30% error in, in um, 
self-reporting. In other words, they're binging and they're eating more and they're just lying to the, the researchers. So I want to say that what this at least finds out is functionally, there's a limit to probably how fast we can lose. You start pushing people too fast. It's not that their quote metabolism starts shutting down and they stop losing. It's probably that they're sneaking a little extra food and you, you really just kind of bumped up to the ceiling of what you can really expect from a human being. But let's look at some of the other, uh, the other issues here. Um, the group with the slow rate, uh, they actually lost more fat mass. And the other group with the fast loss, they lost a little bit more lean body mass. So again, even though there may have been close to, let's just, let's just assume that if, if people self-reporting were not reporting perfectly accurately, at least there was enough change in their attempts that the ones who were losing faster, they actually started losing more lean body mass. And so I would ask you guys as competitors, if you are in the business of showing up to a contest or a performance sport, if you're a powerlifter with the most lean body mass, especially functional quality lean body mass, uh, you know, does it help you to lose weight any faster? I mean, you're going to be shooting yourself in the foot for sure. So part of, part of the reason, again, that I picked this topic this week is to address some of the questions we had uh, earlier this month from, from clients saying, hey, I'm at 25, 30, 35% body fat. Is that enough for the off season or should I gain more body fat? And my answer has been, you know, whoa, let's, let's pump the brakes a little bit. Like we may be way over, like why would you wanna gain more? Because the, the longer you have to diet, the harder you have to diet, you're going to lose so much more lean body mass that you may end up in far, far worse position. And the, the, the thing I think you're going to get most from this presentation are some of the visuals I show you at the end. Uh, but by the way, this was also a performance study. So when you look at their one rep max on squats, uh, deadlifts, presses, even a 40 meter sprint, again, the people who were losing weight the slowest perform the best by, by a mile. So Again, I don't think I'm telling you guys anything you don't know as a conclusion, but but I hope it's a little bit interesting to see that, you know, there there's a lot of good research on this stuff. So long-term impact, measuring the impact of weight cycling. I ran into a couple studies on this that were really uh, important because uh, it, it is sometimes told that I've I've been probably in error quoting some things that that may have not been very valid, such as, Every time you yo-yo diet, when you start losing weight and then you gain and then you lose and then you gain, I've seen reports and I've seen studies that your metabolism just continues to kind of downshift and downshift and downshift into uh, a worse metabolic capacity, some, some real functional you know, adaptation. And, and a couple of studies said, no, that's just really not that true. Your, your metabolism rebounds okay and you're fine. Um, so current evidence does not support an adverse effect of weight cycling on body composition, but by contrast, severe weight loss in normal weight people, which I would consider most of us in physique sport, you know, I think we would be classified as normal weight, even in the off season, we're not necessarily, you know, too clinically obese, uh, but you end up losing a large amount of lean body mass in the process of aggressive dieting. Cause we are the ones who are going down to four five, 6% body fat. Uh, then there seems to be, again, something I think you would think is obvious, a pretty high amount of regain, especially in abdominal fat mass. So this, this is what can tend to lead, especially in men, to heart disease and so forth. 
is that if there's any shifting in how we gain or lose body fat, and it'd be interesting to ask you guys, um, because as a coach and as a competitor, I have noticed some really odd little shifts. Like every time you lose weight or every time I would lose body fat for a contest and then I would regain some weight in the off season, it always seemed to be a little bit different. It's like, man, did I, you know, do, do I have more body fat on my trunk now instead of my glutes or is it, you know, vice versa or this or that, you know, it always seemed to be just a little bit different and, and not in a crazy way, but they are showing that, uh, that, that, that does happen. That's, that's a physiological nuance. So here's another one that just shows some good correlation, preserving healthy muscle mass during weight loss, uh, calorie restriction, a 30 to 40% calorie defi energy deficit. So again, pretty, pretty strong diet decreases the postprandial rate of muscle protein synthesis. So after you eat, you know, one of the things we do, you know, or, you know, we, we train, right. And then we immediately want to eat some protein to get that, that protein synthesis. And even during the day, during our other meals, we want to always make sure we have protein at that meal. And we always talk about uh, limiting factors like leucine. And, and did you get an even, you know, anabolic threshold response? And so that's, that's that change of postprandial or, or post eating rate of protein synthesis. Uh, but then you look at the overall nitrogen balance in your body at, 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 as a general rule throughout the entire day. And just skipping to that last line, uh, the loss of muscle mass during prolonged calorie restriction is mediated by an increase in protein proteolysis rather than suppressed uh, muscle protein synthesis. So in other words, we're, you're, you're, when, when we are dieting and we're consuming protein right after training and we're even consuming protein at those meals, when you're dieting too hard, you can't even keep up. Like even that amount of protein is not enough to keep protein synthesis going at those critical meal times. Meaning again, there's just a rate of fat loss that's too much. You know, you, you keep it on the more moderate side and you're fine. You get into a chronic calorie deficit that so far your body's truly fighting for survival, then you cannot even keep up with protein synthesis when you're consuming enough protein. So that's where the increased loss of, of lean body mass really comes into play. Okay, I think I've only got one or two more studies. I, one of the things I did not, I could not do for this particular topic. I couldn't just pick one study and say, hey guys, this is the greatest study ever. Let's pick it apart. There's just way too much information out there for this particular topic. Because you're really looking at, you know, asking the question, what is the best way to diet? You know, pretty, pretty broad general question. But then you whittle that down to, you know, fat-free muscle mass retention and so forth. And there are just too many, too many roads we could go down. Uh, so it has been suggested that fat-free mass loss should compose no more than 30% of total weight loss. So first of all, let that ring in your ears for a second. Researchers realize that when you put somebody in a calorie deficit, yeah, 30% muscle loss, that's pretty good. That's pretty average. Like, that, that should keep you up at night as a competitor, like 30 freaking percent. There's no way I'm going to let 30% of my weight loss be from muscle. But here's, here's a cool little nuance that is, is kind of weird to conceptualize because skeletal muscle mass in obese has been shown to consist of an increased amount of low density muscle tissue. So researchers will sometimes call this just like low quality muscle. It's like shitty muscle. That muscle doesn't even count. 
you know, you got good muscle and you got stupid muscle. And, and what really categorizes that differently is that over time, and this is going to be one of my final points today, it's the density of the muscle mass. It's the functionality. It's how long have you had that lean body mass on your body? So there is increased capillary density. There is increased mitochondrial density. You know, that actually matters. So as you're gaining amino acid content in muscle fibers and those muscle fibers are growing, they become better, higher quality, better functioning parts of your anatomy that do stay with you longer. Like that's, that's the muscle that you don't necessarily lose over time. So there is such a thing as quote, low quality muscle. And it's the physiological principle of last in first out that low quality muscle that may be just like baby muscle, so to speak, as soon as you hit a calorie deficit, that shit's gone. Like your body's going to catabolize that. Like it was never there in the first place. So let's go back to our hypothesis. I'm a competitor. I'm in the off season. My coach says, Hey, dumbass gain 60 pounds. Let's, let's the goal is to eat as many calories as you can. That's what you should really be doing. I don't care that we have to be in a, a ridiculous low calorie diet for six months and we have to do four hours of cardio a day. It's all about how much mass and weight you can gain in the off season, bro. And that's the person who, who will eat themselves into obesity and then they diet in all of that new, quote, low quality muscle, bam, first thing to go. And probably a lot of your longer term, more dense, higher quality muscle. So let's, uh, let, let's dig in here just a little bit. This, this is one I threw in there for fun. I must didn't put this in there. But look at this, man. A study from 1967, you know, testing this kind of stuff. This is how long these people have been looking at this. And uh, I'm not going to dig deep into this, but they, they really looked at a severe, like this is kind of a clinical study where they've got people in the lab and they're putting them through extremes and they're drawing blood. This isn't like, hey, let's let's put 100 people on a diet and test them for six months. This is like, we're just going to look at what's happening in the bloodstream. And so they put people on a, on, a, on a 600 to 800 calorie diet. Those are the people who are lucky. They got to eat 600 to 800 calories. Other people got to eat only 150 calories a day. And so it was almost a fasting type study. But they showed that you could you would lose, look at that, 22 grams of lean body mass loss for the moderate versus 143 grams of lean body mass. Uh, so you're just you're literally looking at a 600% increase of, of extra you know fat-free mass loss. And only to show you again that there is correlation. You know, the harder you diet, the more muscle you lose. That's just the end of the story. So here's what I want to get to. And this is why I said this is not going to like be a, a super long presentation because I want to talk a little bit more off the cuff, doing some Q&A. Uh, here, here is a client of mine uh, in the same posing trunks, on the same stage, at the same show, one year apart. Uh, lighting is slightly different. You know, I will grant you that on the right, there's a little bit more direct overhead lighting. I think you can see that. But to your discerning eye, when you look at just actual muscle mass that you can attribute to a, a, a just a better look, is there anybody who would argue against me that on the right, he looks bigger and denser? Okay, I, I see no hands. Um, 
he was 183 pounds in both of these pictures, one year apart. Maybe a little bit of body comp difference. You know, maybe he was a half a pound or a pound leaner on the right, that kind of thing. Uh, but again, I mean, talk about a case study, a dream case study. Same person, same, same stage, same weight, same trunks, same pose, one year apart, exact same weight. Here's the difference. The picture on the left, he had dieted on his own and he had an off season where he had to lose 40 pounds to achieve that weight. And uh, he got second place at that show and he hired me right after the show. So instead of just for prep, we had the off season first. And I said, hey, Mr. Client, I got an idea. How about we not put on 40 pounds this time? If you want to do this show next year and you want to win this, maybe we'll be a little bit more moderate so we don't have to diet as hard. And I'm going to tell you a secret. I think you're going to be bigger and you're going to like it. You're not going to have to diet as hard. You're not going to have to do as much cardio. And even though it goes counter to everything you think you know, if you trust me, I think I got a surprise for you. So he won this pro show. I think this was the Mr. Universe. Uh, and, and the difference was after only having to lose 15 pounds, so he didn't get that great off season, right? He didn't get to gain 40 pounds. He didn't get to walk around feeling like King Kong, you know, in the off season. Um, but look at the difference. Our, our goal is not how much body fat we have. Our goal is not how much we weigh. Our goal is how we look on the stage if we're in uh, physique sport. So here's another guy that did the exact same thing. Uh, exact same scenario on the left is when he had just finished a contest and he hired me for the off season and he only had six months before we were going to compete again. And I said, we cannot play a game where we're going to like gain a bunch of weight and lose it and so forth. If we just increase calories slowly and you don't even really have a chance to gain fat mass, you're not going to gain body fat and have to lose it but we can have that period of time where we're increasing food up to off season maintenance levels. I think you'll be happy with the result. So again, this is my point without gaining body fat, without being that competitor who thinks that they have to gain a ton of body fat to gain size and strength and lean body mass, you know, perspective is a little bit different and so forth, but, but, do you see a little extra size and fullness on this man's back on the right? You know, obviously he was much, much stronger. You know, he was eating six, 700 calories more, you know, so I don't need to belabor that point. So now look, it's, it's me. Isn't it cute? You guys get to see a picture of me at my first contest at 20 years old. So first of all, look at the far right picture of my rear lat spread. Not only do I not know how to pose, but you can count my ribs through my lats. Um, so my, my point is not to embarrass myself, but that those pictures on the, the outsides are, are at 150 pounds when I was 20 years old and the pictures in the middle are at almost 40 years old. So I've had 20 years of powerlifting and training and guess what my weight is 150 pounds. So I spent 20 years in the sport training and I gained zero fucking muscle, like not one ounce of muscle in 20 years. But as a drug-free natural bodybuilder, my contention is 
muscle mass in terms of pure gross volume, that's normal. Once you have trained for six to 12 months pretty aggressively, like you know what you're doing in the gym, you have gained up to 95% of all of the muscle mass you're ever going to gain. Um, Sorry to crush any dreams. That's the truth. But the shape of your muscle, the quality of your muscle, that capillary density, that mitochondrial density, you know, all of that does, and you get stronger. I mean, I could barely squat 185 pounds at 20 years old. At 40 years old, I was squatting 500 pounds. So there's a difference. But but again, I mean, even in just the shape of the muscle, if you look at my quads on the left, kind of like a puppy with big paws, you could see this gangly little 20 year old kid, like, damn, that guy's got some, some quad shape. Like he's probably going to be able to gain, he's probably going to build some, some legs. And uh, you know, that ended up being what I was known for in the sport. But at the same time, it's, it's the, it's the depth, it's the density, it's, it's the illusion of size because every little bit of extra muscle width you get in, in the, the, you know, the, the central part of the muscle bellies, and then you get leaner and those tendons are still the same dimensions you just get a, a cumulative dimensionality of, of visual size. It'll be fun, be fun hearing you guys ask uh, questions about this uh, because it is, it is, as I would say, a pretty uncontroversial topic. The, the harder you diet, the, the bigger the calorie deficit, the longer you diet, the more muscle mass you're gonna lose. But how does that translate to us in the off season and the pre-contests um, you know, as we go through that? So the floor is yours, guys. Feel free to ask any questions you want. You can. Un- I think uh, Steve's already unmuted, so go right ahead there, sir. Hey, uh, you were talking about uh, low-calorie dieting and even at consistent protein feeds through the day, still losing body mass. Would that, would that have any reason because you were converting protein for energy use because there was not enough in the daily intake also is that a yeah if you look at all of those ranges steve you know in that one table i showed you had up to 36 percent muscle loss and as low as like nine to ten percent uh you know that's kind of what you're shooting for it is if research shows an average lean body mass loss through a, aggressive dieting is going to be about you know 30 percent could be expected you want to be the person overachieving and and if you are you know just at 30% of that at 10 pounds, that's a big deal. And it goes like this, Steve, Um, you know, I've shared this before in all of my own personal body composition testing over the years. You know, if I was 190 pounds and I did a bone scan, DEXA bone scan, I would legitimately show 160 pounds of lean body mass. But then when I diet down to 150, you know, my lean body mass is 145. And so you would say, well, you lost 15 pounds of muscle. That was an awful diet. Well, that's just normal because, you know, when you test my body composition at 190, 180, 170, 160, 150, over the course of 30 or 40 years, you'll see that every time I weigh 180, that's my body comp. Every time I weigh 150, that's my body comp within a couple pounds or a couple percent. And that's where you're really you know, asking your question, Steve, is how do you mitigate that the best? And yes, we need some form of training stimulus. Uh, We also definitely have to have the protein there. Matter of fact, all of these studies, uh, when you dig into the details, 
they're pretty smart people because they're a lot of these studies are in the journal of sports medicine and nature and biology. So they're not testing the RDA level. You know, they were, they were giving people two to two and a half times the RDA level of protein because already conclusive research shows that's just what's necessary or best to, to stave off catabolism. So, yeah, I mean, you're going to have some quote muscle loss, but it's the inflated amount of low quality muscle that you're, 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 you know, losing first, but there's one little other caveat I want to mention with that, Steve, you know how I've remarked several times that I really, really like the trend that a lot of competitors these days are finding value in longer off seasons. If you're taking a three-year off season or four-year off season, or you've kind of hung up the trunks for seven years and, and then you're going to come back, that low quality initial muscle, that has a lot of time to gain mitochondrial density and vascularity. And, and, and so you know, a lot of that does become longer term muscle, but the person who's competing every six months, every year, they're always on a, they're either gaining in the off season or dieting, gaining, dieting, gaining, dieting. They're never going to gain any new muscle. Like that's just all going to be very transient. So, so that's where Steve, you can really lock into some good gains. Um, you know, that's why I'm in the 15th year of my off season right now. I'm, I'm going for the mother load here, baby. When I, when I hit that comeback, it's going to be amazing. You guys laughing, you, you know, just, just one other minute. I'll We'll let anybody else jump in. I, but I want to ask this, mm -hmm. uh, and you, and you probably know the the guys that I'm talking about from the gym. You helped one of them. You know their their whole belief system is just get heavy mm -hmm. and get as big as possible, and cheeseburgers, everything, and and how much better it's going to make their density and their muscle and. To your point, I, I, when you worked with Joel, mm. now you must have made a lot of progress with him because neither one of them do that anymore. Mm. Yeah, so, I mean, um, you know, may, and, maybe, and, maybe I had a little impact, but I think a lot of other people are giving out good information as well. But but if if the topic came up, what – if anything, does fat do to help you develop muscle mass? To a certain point, Steve, th there, there are two factors. There's metabolic function and there's this a, a sheer form of physics. So, um, you know, Andrew's actually a, a mechanical or structural engineer. So, you know, you know, when you have something that's a certain size, you know, there's, there's a difference to it, you know, a weight load, you know, bearing surface, you know, spreading that, that out. Uh, but when you go to biomechanics, you're, you're creating a lot of change, like even in the joint spaces and so forth. So gaining extra body fat can, can almost give you this internal compression, um, but it's also, you also get elastic energy. So for example, if I'm, if I'm squatting and I have 30 extra pounds around my middle, then, you know, as my trunk is approximating toward my quads, you know, there's just a, a, a an elastic energy effect in, in just pure physics. Uh, and so you get a little stronger and, and, you know, as you gain some weight and you have intramuscular fat, you know, you can feel again, it's, it's not contractile, it's not functionally assisting you, but from that elastic energy standpoint, 
And you, you know, that, that allows you to handle more weight. And so if I can put more weight on my back to squat, all of the muscle tissue in my body is going to have a chance to be under a higher load. And so you do, I mean, that's how you do get stronger, but there's a law of diminishing returns. You know, how much of that body fat is really important. So as I said earlier, you know, every power lifter knows that they can reach a point of body composition, you know, fat mass that actually hurts their performance because now instead of extra compressive and elastic energy, it's just inefficient, you know, body mass that impedes their movements. So, you know, as I mentioned to you, I, I have fluctuated between 150 pounds contest weight and I've never been as high as 200 pounds one time. And yet no matter how high I would get, my, my PRs in every single lift always happened around 175 to 180. And, and I kept wanting, man, if I just get to 190, well, if I get to 195, if I get to 200, I'll be so much stronger. And I just never did. Like, and, and I think that's what most people find is, you know, you come down to a certain weight that's, you know, if you go down to just nature, you know, look at ants, you know, what, 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 you know, how many times their body weight can they lift? But then you look at something like an elephant and, you know, there's just, again, that law of diminishing return of, of how much physical biological space there is between muscle tissue and tendons and your skeletal system versus those leverage points. So to, to answer your, your, your question, um, you have to be in a calorie surplus enough to be above your metabolic set point. You have to have enough of a calorie intake to maintain that maintenance. So you don't have waves of catabolism, you know, while you're trying to diet. So I think an off season should be pretty diligent. Your nutrition should be spot on and regulated. And, and you should, you should really try and cover up those, those potentially catabolic spots in your days. But again, you know, there's just a there's just a, a space where you know going higher is not helping you physically get stronger, and now hopefully with some of the awareness of these studies, you know that it actually is going to hurt you. Like you're you're literally as you have to diet that weight off, you're going to be in worse shape. You're going to lose more lean body mass. You're going to look worse than if you would have just stayed a little bit leaner. All right, I've got a two parter for you. Okay. Um, so I know that within uh, the, the bodybuilding sphere, it seems to be gaining a lot of steam as far as a managing body fat, particularly during a very extended off season, is a lean cut. Um, so, and, and everybody's kind of got their own take on it, but it seems like generally people are saying, let's take an aggressive approach for, say, two to three weeks. Um, a, a lot more than say that that one uh, pound uh, or less body weight per week and closer to somewhere between two and three pounds a week, uh, depending on the person. So is there any validity to the idea that just by taking an aggressive approach for a much shorter period of time, that, that they're actually making, you know, making up any ground to then get back into a maintenance slash uh, surplus situation. So there's that piece. And then the second one would be, um, I know you have some personal experience with say fasting for fat loss and the idea that you could potentially, um, um, play the game where you're fasting for say one day a week and not, and not even eating in a deficit for the rest of the week and creating your entire week's deficit within one 
day or, or a day and a half. Either one of those strategies, you know, is there any literature to, to say that it's almost like you get the game the system a little bit or just rate of loss is rate of loss? Yeah, I'll answer the first one first uh, because I don't want to create like I don't think I could possibly create a rift with Eric Helms and me because we're we're too good of friends. But that all started with him as a hypothesis. And when you're a trusted voice in the industry, you just say something and everybody starts doing it. And I respectfully disagree with him. Um, as I created this entire, you know, what I termed a metabolic building phase of nutrition and dieting, you know, probably about 17, 18 years ago, um, very quickly, other voices in history turned that into the phrase reverse dieting. And whether you do it on the front side of a contest, which is the metabolic building phase I talked about. So the guy that I said was 183 pounds a year difference, you saw those, not only did he only gain 15 pounds so that we could lose it slowly. We were stage ready six weeks before that contest. And so his food was coming up, coming up, coming up, coming up, coming up, coming up. The reason he looks so much thicker, so much denser and leaner is because, you know, at 40 pounds deficit, he was still dieting like a maniac to get to the stage. He was at off season levels of food when I coached him. Big, big, big difference. And Eric, uh, you know, has, has taken the reverse dieting concept, which is okay. Your contest is over. Now, are you going to go binge on ice cream and brownies and Big Macs all weekend? Or are you going to, you know, slowly titrate food in and, you know, let's add 50 calories next week and hundred calories the next week. And are you going to come out of this painfully slowly? Well, first of all, if you've dieted with me and you've been as successful as I'm describing contest is over you're already at maintenance levels of food. You're not even hungry. Like, you know, there is no reversing out of that. Uh, there's no trauma. There's no decision to be made. But, you know, I also have clients who just didn't hit that mark and they may be still in a pretty solid calorie deficit. And for those who actually take the time to say, you know, I'm going to, you know, go have a nice little indulgent meal. And then, then I'm kind of back on track. Joe, where do you want my macros? We may come up 100 calories that next week and then another 100 calories next week. It happens so rapidly that within four to six weeks, their calories are up to a level where they feel sated. They're, they're feeling like a monster in the gym. Everything's great. And, and they still don't have any fat regain. Eric's hypothesis is that these people are critically low in food. So there's hormonal suppression and adaptation and we gotta, we gotta intervene. So let's get their body fat up. Like go eat like a maniac for two or three weeks, like you said, to, to rescue them. And then we'll start the off season. I disagree. I, I just, I, I have 30 years of experience working with clients doing things all different ways. And I don't think you have to have that fat regain in a massive surge of calories to feel well and to be well. Um, so, so there's that part of your question. On the fasting, um, I, I would say, I, I don't think there's any research to compare it as deeply as you're asking, but because we know there is research and just kind of, kind of a, an accepted uh, dogma that to eat enough protein and to space out your protein and to meet those, you know, anabolic thresholds at each meal, like that's the norm, that that's the baseline of being a responsible dieter. 
But we also know because of just cellular receptor site adaptation, that sometimes your body just gets used to that level of food intake and that cyclical nature of, of amino acid content and nitrogen in your bloodstream. And now it takes like any drug more and more and more and more to get a response, a threshold response. And so you may not be getting the protein synthesis you thought. So to do some protein fasting in the very least to say, well, maybe we don't need to spread out 175 grams of protein over nine meals, you know, like maybe we can do it in three. You have other meals where they're just carbs or whatever, and we may not eat protein for six hours, but then we have a higher amount. There have been studies to show that you are, as you said, Andrew, kind of gaming the system. You get more protein synthesis at those meals, but now you have to do the long-term math in real clinical application and say, okay, higher threshold, you know, infrequent meals versus titrating it very carefully and maybe less receptor sites, you know, affinity work, you know, how does the math work out over six months? Does one of those two groups really retain more lean body mass? And I don't know if there would be much difference. I really don't. I I think it would come down to, you're still getting the same amount of protein per day per week. And so um, I, I just think that's where individually by our own deviations, you know, one day being a little bit different. I think that's probably the best thing we can do is that maybe the baseline reality is a pretty normal day and normal week. And then when you have those days where you just can't keep up, you have have one or two meals less and you're having to eat an extra big meal here, there, like maybe that's actually beneficial. You're getting the best of both worlds. But I, I really do think if there was a study done on that, it would just show like so many other things in biology. It's just the like, like total work matters, total calories matter. I think total protein matters more than what you're describing. Good questions, guys. Who, who else has anything? Dan. I got something for you, Joe. First of all, when you asked earlier about, you know, seeing um, uh, changes in your body from uh, year to year uh, in preps, like you had mentioned, uh, I definitely see that this year. I see that uh, uh, my hams are a lot leaner than they were last year. And my abs are a little bit more uh, holding more fat, even if I look at what weight I am today versus what weight I was last year. So I noticed my body holding the fat in different places. Uh, I also noticed that uh, uh, I look a lot denser based on the uh, training programs that you provided. Uh, I, I look at what I was doing versus what I am doing. Um, what a difference. I mean, I never trained like this. So I think I actually got newbie gains this year mm. because one of the things that Brett Contreras talked about in one of his videos was, yeah, it is only a certain way to build muscle and lose fat at the same time. But if you never train properly, that could be a, a fourth or a fifth way. And I'm getting a sense that that's what I'm experiencing this year. So thanks for that. For sure. My, my question is balancing protein synthesis with fat loss. For example, uh, on Wednesday, uh, Jesse talked a little bit about, you know, uh, meal timing and the metabolic switch, which we, which we talked about, you know, in previous uh, uh, podcasts and, um, you know, uh, uh, presentations. So on one hand, you want to make sure you spread out your meals long enough for uh, that switch. 
But on the other hand, you want to maximize protein synthesis, especially during contest prep where we just saw that you're in danger of losing lean body mass. So uh, what, do you th- what, what do you think is a, the, the balance there? That's that's the golden question, right? That's what that's what everybody yeah. tries to figure out. And this this is why things like branched chain amino acids became so popular. I think it was it was either Mario Di Pasquale or Charles Polquin. Somebody like maybe 15 or 20 years ago had everybody like like literally in the gym with a bottle of branched chain aminos. And like every 10 minutes, you're taking like two capsules and then you do a set, take two capsules and do a set because, oh my gosh, if, if you just miss like those 10 seconds that you could have been anabolic, you know, you're going to lose muscle. And then that's when Cyvation Creative extends. So it could be a drink mix. And then all of a sudden, all my clients are carrying around like pink and blue and green you know, <laughs> gallons of water all day because they're like, they, they can't drink any water without branched chain aminos. And what that did, instead of just making everybody super anabolic, is it's just like having an IV drip of amino acids that now your body's going to use that as energy instead of body fat. Um, so you do have to have those spans of time between meals where you're just getting zero nutrition, no calories to interfere with fat loss knowing that the, you know, the deeper you go into that meal cycle without food, then yeah, a, a greater and greater and greater percentage of the energy harvested will include some amino acids. And so, you know, I I think this is where it's, it's super smart for Eric to have hypothesized these diet breaks. You know, he, he looked at people like me who for years before he was even lifting weights, you know, we would all have a, a cheat meal, a higher calorie day, a this or that. We all, we all had ways of mitigating, you know, the effects of a calorie deficit. You know, even people in ketogenic dieting, if you look at the old, you know, you know, Prillo and Beverly and, and all of these people who would do nutrition programming, like in the eighties and nineties, and if it was purely ketogenic, it, it wasn't purely keto, it was kind of bodybuilder keto. But they would always say, okay, like every, like every Wednesday and Saturday, have a baked potato or a bowl of oatmeal. It's like keto until then, but carbs, carbs, just to make sure you get a little bit of an anabolic break. And I, I, I think that, you know, uh, Eric's hypothesis that, well, maybe like one meal or one day is not enough. What if we did two days back to back? So we have these little micro diet breaks. I thought that was brilliant. And I started testing that with my clients and I think we had good results. I think a lot of people, instead of one really, really big meal, you know, may do better with, with it spread out over two days. Um, but again, just like some of the research I went over today, I think you can still be so far behind, you know, as, as that one super low calorie diet showed that, that you're just not even getting protein synthesis when you're eating protein because you're such in a deficit. I, I think it depends on how hard you're dieting that whether you have one meal or one day or two more moderate days, again, I don't know if there's that much difference, but there may be some people where one big extra meal is better than spreading it out over two days. But the other thing that Eric did in that whole you know line of thinking was, and he has a study published, like I ran into it as I was doing this research, where they looked at... Uh, uh, intermittent dieting versus consistent dieting. So what if every three months you take two weeks off and you just come up to a, you know, calorie maintenance for two weeks, and then you go back to it. 
Um, you know, the conclusions of that are that you don't necessarily, you know, lose any time, um, but it's also not necessarily any better. It just gives you a nice psychological and physical break. So the, the fact that if, if you go back to my binder of my testing, like, like 20 years of competition and to Carissa's question, I've had DEXA body scans, I've done hydrostatic underwater weighing, I've done calipers, I've done all this stuff. And what matters most is just the consistency of the testing and the, the averages, because you never know where there's going to be an outlier. You know, it's the fact that you can look at every time I was 155 pounds, let, let's say for 15 contest seasons, and I can see, at, you know, year one of my competition career, year two, year three, year five, year 10, you know, you can see that I was adding a little bit of lean body mass, a little bit of lean body mass on average. But as you saw in these pictures of both me and my clients, it's never like, oh, look, this is the year I gained 10 pounds of lean body mass because I did this new thing better than ever. Uh, so, so again, I, you know, I, I, it's a long road to answering your question, but it's, I, I think that's the dance we're all trying to figure out on our own is, you know, how to create the best fat loss and mitigate the lean body mass loss yeah. at the same time. And, you know, it's a, it's a very personal thing that has to work with our genetics as well, you know, as a, as a slow loser, like I know that's why, you know, I could never, no matter how hard I tried, lose more than a pound a week. I could never lose more than a pound a week. I mean, as a hypothyroid, slow metabolic person, that was maximum effort for me. And yet if I tried to lose faster, I literally would lose just as much lean body mass as I would fat mass. You know, those, those times I tried to do keto, I tried to do more cardio you know, those are the times that you did see big drops in my lean body mass. It, it didn't help me at all. So, you know what? Now, based on the, the new research, it was actually an advantage having that um, uh, genetic makeup because it seems like that one pound per week is the um, uh, sweet spot for most people. Yeah. And your body kind of kept you in there. So that was actually a uh, uh, an advantage that, you know, you would just just happened to be born with? Well, being the fat guy who has a hard time losing weight, I wouldn't say it was an advantage, <laughs> but I would say it's at least, it, it, there, there's at least one silver lining I can be. Exactly. exactly. Hey, you look pretty good in those pictures too. I mean, come on. Those Tom Platt legs, you can't, you can't deny that. Well, if, if, you, if you can't lose body fat very well, at least you're good at retaining muscle mass, which, which exactly. is a silver lining. Gotcha. All Chris, right. Thanks. Hey, Jim. Hey, Joe. Yes, sir. I, uh, I got a question that, that somebody on this line might be interested in uh, an answer to is uh, you mentioned hormones. So would you talk a little bit about the effects of either fat intake, daily intake of fat, or have an extra body fat and its effect on female or male hormonal levels? Mm -hmm. And does it make a difference? Question one. Number two is just if all three, four weeks back, we talked about a gentleman that's been with me for over a year or so. And, and you know, he was toggling back at 173, 174 pounds. And we decided to take a diet break and toggled him up 250 for a week or so. And then another 250. He's actually dropped down 
to 170, 171 mm-hmm. in three weeks from doing that, which was kind of an interesting thing, taking a little break. Mm-hmm. But the yeah. one question, I think I, I would like to know some things about it too, how to describe it. I mean, I've heard so many different stories about fat and hormones and so forth. Can, can you talk about the science of that a bit? Yep. I've got a couple podcasts on this. Um, and I'm going to answer in one sentence because it's just a super easy answer. Um, the higher your fat intake and the higher your fat body composition, the lower your testosterone. So it's counterintuitive. All the guys who say, got to eat beef, got to have burgers. I got to have this beer gut. And that's what increases my testosterone. That actually decreases your testosterone. So just like, um, you know, the threshold theory or laws in biology, if you're super low, like if I'm running around at 3% body fat and I'm in a calorie deficit, yes, my testosterone is not that high. But in a stable environment, when you're comparing apples to apples and you're looking at carbs versus fat intake, a high fat diet decreases testosterone. A low fat diet is better for testosterone. And when you get up to a certain, like, like again, if I'm a three, 4% body fat, my overall testosterone levels, you know, my mean average is they're not just not going to be high. When I get up to my metabolic set point, seven, eight, nine percent body fat, then they'll return to normal. If I go up to 20% body fat, they'll start coming back down. So again, there's that bell curve of homeostasis. Um, but one of the things that I want to, I want to say to, I want to make sure I answer uh, Chris's questions here from the chat box. Um, I, I think most people, Chris, in, in research labs now just use DEXA scanning because it's so, it's so easy. Like they're so accessible now that, you know, every major university institution has one that's a bone scan that's within like a 10th of a percent accurate. Um, back in the days when I was in college at the, you know, IU med school, uh, you know, they just didn't exist. And so we still did underwater hydrostatic weighing, which was kind of, it, it was actually probably worse in terms of reliability than actual calipers. But at the same time, you know, that was at least the only scientific thing you could do. Uh, now they have in bodies, you know, a, a much, much higher, um, you know, level of technology for bioelectrical impedance, which gets you very, very close to DEXA scanning. And now they have the, uh, the home or c- commercial model, Styku is one company that does like a home version of a DEXA body scan. So you stand in front of this machine and it scans you, gives you a 3D image of your body. And, and so I think between that and, and in-body you know, type, type test, you're so, so close to uh, a, a bone scan that, it, that those are just the best you can get. When you're really lean enough, then calipers are good information because you know if, if I've got my abs down to four millimeters if I test at four and a half one day, like there's, there's such little tissue there that you're really measuring a good change. Um, so that's one of the things I used to do as well. And so I could take my body fat measurements, you know, with that, I could look at photos, I could compare that to weight. And that was always a good measurement, but, but really less reliable, the heavier you get. Um, go ahead, Amanda. I know you had a question there too. So um, I hate to get like too personal um, on my own, what's going on with myself, but I do have a question for you. So 
Um, for somebody that is already above that body fat percentage where they want to be, they're in the 30%, um, like I had mentioned before, um, what would you recommend to kind of offset that without losing muscle mass? And then also if I'm trying to get into a prep a year from now, how, I mean, I, my, my mind is just concerned of, of how long of a prep should I try to, to do without um, losing that muscle mass being, well, hopefully I wouldn't have to be in an extreme deficit, but if today I was, um, you know, really restricting myself, how long would I want to do something like that before it would just really be harmful? Okay. The perfect question to end today on, because I, I definitely don't want to leave anybody, especially you, Amanda, like without hope saying, okay, you know, I've screwed it up. Now I'm, I'm not going to have a successful year. You just have to think of it in stages. And, and this is where, you know, Helm's theory of diet breaks really is helpful. So I'm going to give two stories. One is a client of mine who started dieting January 1st, one year. And she's a client who had a very difficult time getting a pro card. She was a, an ectomorph, like super, super tiny, just didn't have the mass. So she finally got her pro card. Now she's getting ready for her first pro show. We start dieting for a spring show. That show gets canceled. So then we have to, okay, well, let's, let's pull back a little bit. Let's, let's add a little food in and then we'll, we'll hit the summer show. Well, then she had a personal family emergency. Couldn't do that. Okay. Now we got to really pull back, get ready for the fall. Finally in November, after 11 months of dieting and having to almost stair step this. So it's like, okay, diet, we're not dieting. We're dieting. We're not, let's add some food. Let's maintain. She won the overall pro world championships because like my client, I showed you photos of, she was, she, she wasn't able to, she had to increase calories. And so we were moving up. So in 11 months span of being in a calorie deficit and being vulnerable to muscle loss. And yet because of the way we managed the end, you know, she was able to actually appear and, and look bigger. When I won my pro card, I did the exact same thing on purpose. This is when I got up to 200 pounds and I had to diet all the way under, you know, 160. And it's like, okay, let's just, you know, start doing the work. Let's bring the calories down, start doing cardio. Now as my body is adjusting, I have to drop a little bit more, drop a little bit more, take a little break, drop a little more, drop a little more. Even though it may not have been ideal because I did take 11 months to do it slowly that's how you mitigate muscle loss. All of the crazy percentages of, of lean body mass loss you saw in these studies are people doing very low calorie and low calorie dieting for intense bursts. So if you don't try and go from 30% body fat to eight in 16 or 20 or 24 weeks, you're going to be fine. You know, right now you could say, okay, look, I'm, I'm definitely cashing in the chips. I'm done trying to gain weight. Like I'm going to I'm going to just kind of settle here for a week or two, let my body fat come down a little bit. You know, you could probably start losing half a pound a week or just a pound or two a month and still get stronger. Matter of fact, one of the studies I did not point out, but there were people, the people with a more moderate calorie loss, they actually gained muscle in a calorie deficit because the calorie deficit was so moderate. And to one of Dan's points, you know, the novelty or the improvement in training probably had something to do with that. The training is better, uh, you know, different kind of stimulus. So you're going to be fine, but 
don't don't think okay I got to smash all this into you know just a really good aggressive diet prep just just take your time and and chunk out the the amount of work you have now and and it'll be perfectly perfectly fine the second part of my question was for women hormones mm -hmm. was actually what I was wanting to know. S same thing, Steve, same thing. Okay. I mean, it's just like, you know, high fat diets, decrease hormones, um, high, high body composition levels of fat, decrease hormones. And, it, and it's because fat, it just gets in the way. It's, it's the most metabolically inefficient thing. You know, it's, it's inert food, you know, the, the thermic effect is 3% at its highest because long chain triglycerides are so big molecularly, the body just doesn't do anything with them unless until they have to. And so every bit of dietary fat you consume just gets stored in adipose tissue right out of the bloodstream. And so, you know, that, that just gets in the way of, of even, you know, those, those metabolic functions or, or I should say hormonal functions. And, and that's, that's, go ahead. It's another, another good reason why you don't want to get excessively overweight. Absolutely. Uh, and that's kind of to Carlos's question in the chat box is, you know, did, did these people diet on higher low carbs? Because these are typically clinically, you know, peer reviewed research pieces. Uh, number one, none of them were testing keto versus carbs uh, because that's just a different type of study. So they, they did the, the, what would be just kind of, standard RD type research where you're getting the, you know, again, most of the time it was, it was above the USAD levels of, of protein. It was always like two to two and a half times, but then it was your classic, like, you know, 50 to 60% carbs, 10 to 20% fat, because it's just, it goes without saying the research is so conclusive that low carb ketogenic diets are inferior. And so no good researcher is going to try and study serious topics uh, using a low carb approach because that is already just the worst way to eat and the worst way to diet. So, but, but again, those studies are separate. I mean, there are studies showing what I just said, but they would never use that to try and test actual metabolic function in the human body.